U.S. Navy History arriving. So, welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by the man with a plan, the Christoph. Hey, Dale. Good to be here. Good to see you again. So, we are doing a different conflict today. We are jumping back in time to the American Revolutionary War, or the War of Independence. Uh, again, the uh, original recordings were lost, so we are uh, redoing it, just, you know, for you guys. So are you ready to get underway? Oh, indeed, yes. All right, so let's cast off. So, the close of the Seven Years' War in 1763, this was the French and Indian War, this saw Great Britain as the winner. They drove the French from North America. And even though they were the winner, they had been forced to borrow very, very heavily to uh, win that war. Uh, In particular, they used the American colonies as a base for invading and seizing French territories. So London decided in all of their wiseness that it was time to end the policy of solitary neglect and enforce a more vigorous approach to collecting legal revenues from the 13 colonies. That means Parliament passed the Stamp Act in March of 1765, and this imposed direct taxes on the colonies for the very first time. This pissed people off. (laughs) Yeah, um, we're still dealing with that. Yeah, I'm not, not a big fan. The American spokesman who argued this said that their rights as Englishmen meant that taxes could not be imposed on them by Parliament because they lacked representation in Parliament. So the whole taxation without rep- uh, representation thing, which is actually still be, which is still a thing in uh, Washington D.C. Well, yeah, that's a complicated city. I don't understand a lot of why it's organized the way it's organized. Yeah. But they, you should, if you live there, you should be able to be represented, but the federal government controls your city anyway. Yeah. I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> so civil resistance prevented the act from being enforced, and organized boycotts of British goods were started. And this resistance was a... what It, it produced a violent and very natural irritation, as it was described. The A change in government in Britain led to the repeal of the Stamp Act, but it also passed the Declaratory Act, which stated, quote, The said colonies and plantations in America have been, are, and of right ought to be, subordinate unto and dependent upon the imperial crown and parliament of Great Britain. That's a mouthful. Yeah, it does seem like a mouthful for us, but I wonder if that's an appropriate amount of speech for a a Brit. It seems very polished. It it seems very uh, British high class. Mm Mm-hmm. So the Americans had deemed internal taxes like the Stamp Act as unlawful, but not the external taxes like custom duties. 
1767, Parliament passed the Townshed Act in order to demonstrate its superiority. It opposed duties on various British goods exported to the colonies. And the Americans were like, uh, no, this is illegal as well. Right. Because the intent of the act was to raise revenue and not regulate trade. So in 1768, violence breaks out in Boston over attempts to suppress smuggling. And 4,000 British troops are sent to occupy the city. Parliament threatens to try Massachusetts residents for treason in England. But, of course, they're Americans. They are not intimidated. They form a new association, and they boycott British goods. It wasn't as effective as the first time because township ports are very widely used. But, I mean, they're still giving it the old American try. In March of 1775, colonists in Boston were killed in the Boston Massacre, which, of course, pissed people off. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. And that same year, Parliament agreed to repeal all taxes except one. Do you know which one that was? I believe that was on tea, was it not? Bingo! In 1773, there was an effort to rescue the East India Company from financial difficulties. The government attempted to increase the company's tea sales by permitting direct export to the colonies, which reduced the price of the tea. And they also retained the tax at appointing uh, certain merchants in America to receive and sell it. It's too big to fail, Dale. You gotta do something. It, it was a huge company. It really was. Or is. Is? I don't know. I don't know if it's as big. It's certainly not as big as it once was, if it's still around. It is still around. Whoa. What's it up to nowadays? Um, it was founded on December 31st, 1600. Its headquarters was, has been in East India House, London, Great Britain. It was defunct in June 1st, 1874. It has now been nationalized. Its territories and responsibilities ceded to the British government by the Government of India Act in 1858. That's how they got um, their foot in the door in India, for sure. Okay, and then it was dissolved in 1873. It was relaunched after 135 years in 2010 by an Indian entrepreneur. I guess it was time for a rebranding, you know, 135 years. (laughs) So... So tea tax. Tea tax. So the landing of this tea was resisted in all of the colonies. And when the royal governor of Massachusetts refused to send back the tea ships in Boston, patriots destroyed the tea chests. You remember what this is called? Oh, yes, the Boston Tea Party. They were dressed up um, as Mohawk Indians, if I recall. Yes. Now, nobody was punished for the Boston Tea Party, and in 1774, Parliament ordered Boston Harbor closed until they paid for that tea. It was a massive amount of tea. (laughs) Uh, It then passed the Massachusetts Governor Act to punish the colony. The upper house of Massachusetts legislator would be appointed by the Crown, as was already the case in other colonies, such as York and Virginia. The royal governor was able to appoint and remove at will, all judges, sheriffs, and other executive officers and restrict town meetings. 
Jurors would be selected by the sheriffs and British soldiers would be tried outside the colony for alleged offenses. Oh, no way. And this is on the heels of, I think, so when you're talking about the Boston Massacre, John Adams defended successfully the British troops. And, like, they got a fair trial, and now they're pulling this on us? Yep. I say us as if I had anything personally to do with it on our predecessors. They were Americans. You're an American. So, yeah, it's still us. Hey, all right. Well, I don't want to have common cause with everything that all Americans have ever done. Oh, no, of course you not. You know what I'm saying? But this one I'll go ahead and, hey, come on. Yes, no, th- this podcast have, has, has, firmly, has firmly denounced the atrocities that our ancestors have uh, perpetuated throughout history. Uh, anyway, uh, these were all lumped into, quote, intolerable acts by patriots. Now, these actually were not unprecedented acts. The Massachusetts Charter had already been replaced once before in 1691, but the people were still outraged. Town meetings resulted in the Suffolk Resolves, which is a declaration not to cooperate with the royal authorities. Then in October of 1774, a illegal provincial congress was established which took over the governance of Massachusetts outside of Boston occupied or outside of British occupied Boston. And they began training militias. That's when you know things are going south. Yeah. At the same time, in September of 1774, representatives from other colonies convened the first Continental Congress in order to respond to the British atrocities. The Congress rejected a plan of union which was to establish an American parliament that could approve or disapprove the acts of the British parliament. Instead, they endorsed the Suffolk Resolves and demanded the repeal of all parliamentary acts passed since 1763. I could see that. Yeah, they just wanted to be free. Yeah, this would encompass more than the tax on tea and the intolerable acts, as they they called them. They stated that Parliament had no authority at all over internal matters in the colonies, but that they would, quote, cheerfully consent to trade regulation, including custom duties for the benefit of the British Empire. But they also acknowledged, they also required Britain to acknowledge that unilaterally stationing troops in the colonies in a time of peace was against the law. Now, of course, Congress didn't have any legal authority, but it did order the creation of Patriot Committees, who would enforce the boycott of British goods starting on December 1st, 1774. Of course, the British would not just take lying down. Edmund Burke introduced a motion to appeal all the acts of Parliament the Americans objected to, and waive any rights of Britain to tax for revenue. But, of course, it was defeated 210 to 105, and Parliament voted to restrict all colonial trade to Britain. This prevented them from using the Newfoundland fisheries, and they also voted to increase the size of the Army and Navy by 6,000. So they're like, this is going to happen, or we're coming in shooting. Yep. 
Just escalation after escalation. Mm-hmm. In February of 1775, Prime Minister Lord North proposed not to impose taxes if the colonies made themselves, quote, fixed contributions. So, in other words, keep paying us. Yeah. It's, uh, what, what's the term? Uh, racketeering? No, no, not racketeering. <laughs> <laughs> Paying tribute or? Tribute, uh... yeah. Tribute, exactly. Nice colony there would hate for anything to happen to it. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, it's a mafia on a uh, governmental level. Now, this would safeguard the taxing rights of the colonies from future infringement and enable them to contribute to maintenance of the empire. This proposal was rejected by Congress in July as a insidious maneuver, quote unquote. And by this time, of course, hostilities had broken out. Now, inside Britain, uh, they did not present a united front towards the American patriots. The Parliament of Great Britain at this time was divided between conservative or Tory and liberal or Whig factions. The Whigs generally favored lenient treatment to the colonies short of independence, while the Tories very firmly upheld the rights of Parliament. The Whigs felt that the Tories' policies were pushing Americans to rebel, while the Tories thought the Whigs' leniency was doing the same. Many Whigs freely associated themselves with the American Patriot cause, which the Tories thought were encouraging the red-headed stepchild of the colonies in their resistance. The result was that Lord North's Tory government, which usually held a parliamentary majority and a Whig minority, uh, well, it made a large Whig minority oppose it and constantly criticize its policies. And then, uh, this had the effect in the uh, the colonies that Whig commanders came under suspicion of Tories and loyalists for not vigorously prosecuting the war effort. That uh, once you start, like they always talk about political division nowadays in, in the U.S. in particular, but around the world, there are always at least two sides to these kind of discussions, debates. But it's escalating over there in non dictator dick uh, oh dick. Hmm, dictatorships. Dictator. Dictatorships. Right. Yeah, excluding the autocratic states where everything seems to go swimmingly for some reason. I can't explain it. But uh yeah, this is just this is reminiscent of what we're seeing today. It's like, well, no, you're siding with them. No, it's your fault that they're doing this and you're too lenient and and now I'm suspicious of just people that align with you politically and yeah, this is None of this is new. No. It happens time after time after time. So that brings us to the war. In February of 1775, Parliament declared Massachusetts to be in a state of rebellion. All those bad boys. Lieutenant General Thomas Gage, who was the British North American Commander-in-Chief, commanded four regiments of British regulars, which was about 4,000 guys. Whoa. But he orders them from his headquarters in Boston to the countryside. Uh, on April 14th, he received orders to disarm the rebels and arrest their leaders. 
On the night of April 18, 1775, General Gage sent 700 men to seize munitions stored by the colonial militia at Concord in Massachusetts. Writers, including, do you know who? Um, you should. I, I'm guessing it's Sam Adams, Patrick Henry. Wait, oh, Raiders. Sorry. Are we talking writers? Writers. 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 I think they said Raiders. Uh, yeah. I would think Paul Revere. Bingo. Okay. He alerted the countryside, and when British troops entered Lexington on the morning of April 19th, they found 77 Minutemen formed up on the village green. Shots were exchanged. Number of mil- uh, Minutemen were killed. And the British moved on to Concord, where a, deta- where a detachment of three companies was engaged and routed at the North Bridge by a force of 500 Minutemen. Dang. Yeah, they upped the ante there. They certainly did. So as the uh, British fled back to Boston, thousands of militiamen attacked them along the road, inflicting a lot of casualties before British reinforcements prevented a total disaster, just wiping them out. I was going to say, from what I understand, it was the Americans experience with dealing with the native americans in various conflicts and learning a lot of their uh techniques as far as um because they were so such cunning warriors that they had to deal with that they had to adapt and so once the british come and they're they're kind of in their rank and file and they they adhere to these quote-unquote rules of war it's like well we do this and you have to do this and this is how you fight and the americans are like that's not what we've been doing for the past several decades, so we're gonna we're gonna hit you like we hit them. And I think that gave them a pretty good advantage. Uh yeah, there was uh they did a mix of the what they would call the ambushing war or, or whatnot, and then the regular at that time rank and file. We st- we stand over here, you stand over there, we shoot at each other until one of us retreats. Which is the stupidest way to fight it's like don't move stand right there and uh try to hit that guy and you know don't try to dodge anything i fixed bayonets and charge so now that the battles of lexington and concord have happened the war is on so the militia they converge on boston and they pretty much keep the british in the city Then about 4,500 British soldiers arrived by sea on June 17, 1775. British forces under a guy named General William Howey seized the Charleston Peninsula at the Battle of Bunker Hill, which ended up being a very costly attack by the British because it was what they always did, a frontal attack. The Americans did fall back, but British losses totaled over 1,000. Wow. Back then, those are gigantic numbers. But the siege is still in place. They did not break the siege. Uh, Gage was replaced by Howie as the British commander-in-chief. And General Gage wrote to the Secretary of War in London, quote, these people show a spirit and conduct against us they never showed against the French. They are now spirited up by a rage and enthusiasm as great as ever people were possessed of, and you must proceed in earnest or give the business. 
A small body acting in one spot will not avail. You must have large armies making diversions of different sides to divide their forces. The loss we have sustained is greater than we can bear. Small armies cannot afford such losses, especially when the advantage to gain tends to do little more than the gaining of a post. What he's saying here is, holy crap, these guys are fighting us. We need more people, or we're, we're going to be kicked off the continent. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was very insightful. That was exactly the situation. And I thought it was interesting that he was like, yeah, they, they weren't like this when they fought the French. Well, it's like, yeah, we at that time, the Americans were fighting for the British. They were just stand-ins for them. Yep. Whereas here, it's for themselves and their lives and everything that they know. And so that... that uh, Anybody, I think, would would fight more fero ferociously in that situation. Yeah, modern example right now is Ukraine. They're fighting for their livelihood, for their own country, by a bigger aggressor. And when Russia went in there, they never thought they would be still fighting this war. What two years later? Yeah, uh, I don't think a lot of people thought that, but it's. It's, it's impressive. So in July of 1775, George Washington is appointed, and he arrives outside Boston to take charge of the colonial forces and to organize the Continental Army. He realizes that they are very short of gunpowder, and so he asks for new sources. Arsenals were raided, and they did attempt to start some manufacturing. About 90% of the supply, though, was imported. About 2 wow. million pounds of gunpowder by the end of 1776. Mostly from the French. I was going to say, I don't think the British would have been supplying this. And so I was wondering who would have had the capability to do so. But that makes sense. That was uh, the other big dog in the world besides the English. At least from a European standpoint. Well, the English and the French are historically mortal enemies throughout this period. So the French support, supporting the, uh, the colonies is right in their wheelhouse. The uh, Americans in New Hampshire seized powder, muskets, and cannons from Fort William and Mary Portsmouth Harbor in 1774. And some of these munitions were used in the Boston campaign. So the siege continues throughout the fall and the winter. And during this time, Washington was astounded by the uh, General Howey failure to attack his poorly armed and shrinking force. In March of 1776, early in the month, heavy cannons that the uh, Americans had captured at Fort Ticonderoga uh, were brought to Boston by a, game, by a guy named Colonel Henry Knox. And they put them in place at Dorchester Heights. Now that they had artillery, Howie looked up and was like, well, we're screwed. <laughs> and they retreated March 17th, 1776. They got back on their boats and they sailed to their naval base at Halifax in Nova Scotia, which is Canada. Wow. That's quite a retreat. Yes. This is celebrated in Massachusetts as Evacuation Day. 
Nice. Washington then moves most of the Continental Army to fortify New York City. So three weeks after that, the Boston siege began, a group of men called the Green Mountain Boys, they were led by a guy named Ethan Allen and a guy I know you've heard of. I've heard of Ethan Allen, too, but I don't think in this context. Benedict Arnold. Oh, yes. He was actually a really good... He was a good fighter for the Americans, but he was just like, hey, let's just get this behind us so we can rejoin being a colony. And he was shunned, but we'll get to that later. Yes. I think he got kind of a, how you say, a screw job. But <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, No, he was a very good commander. But uh, those two guys, they captured Fort Ticaronda, which was strategically important on Lake Champion between New York and the province of Quebec. And after that battle, they also raided Fort St. John's, which is not far from Montreal. This scared the crap out of the people there. Oh, yeah. Uh, they responded by fortifying St. John's, and they started negotiations with the Iroquois and other North American tribes to ask for help. Yeah, the Iroquois were supremely organized. I think, what is it, Council of the Five Tribes or Seven Tribes? They, they, um, they really were diplomatic in a way with many other tribes. And if you're going to go to any tribe to kind of coordinate anything, I think that would have been the, the primary choice. Yeah, there was, uh, it, it just depended on the tribe. I mean, there were lots of tribes that were just hostile, period. Then there was more diplomatic tribes. But also... They're also feeding off of how they're being treated by these invaders, too. So, Right. And now these invaders are fighting each other, which is even worse for them. Yeah, because they just get caught in the crossfire. Yeah. All right, so because of all of this, uh, Congress on June 27th of 1775 authorized an invasion of Quebec. The goal of this invasion was to drive the British military out of Quebec. So two Quebec-bound operations are undertaken. September 28, 1775, a guy named Brigadier General Richard Montgomery marches north from Fort Ticonderoga with about 1,700 militiamen. And they besiege and capture Fort St. Jean on uh, November 2nd, and then Montreal on November 13th. General Carleton escaped to Quebec City and began, and began preparing that city for an attack. The second one, which was led by Colonel Arnold, yeah, we're going back with Benedict again, he went through the wilderness, which is now northern Maine, and of course you can expect logistics were difficult doing that, he lost 300 men to retreat, and another 200 just died because of the harsh conditions. Oh, yeah, it's November, right? So that's November, December time frame. That's not a good time to invade Canada. Uh, this is September. Oh, sorry. I misheard you. Continue. Well, he started in September, I should say. He ended his march in November. He got there in Quebec City, and he had... About 600 men left. He set out with 1,100. Whoa. 
Yeah. Montgomery and Arnold, they join force, and they attack Quebec City on December 31st. But they were defeated, and that, and Montgomery died during that 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 battle. And Arnold was wounded. Uh, Four hundred Americans were taken prisoner. The rest of the Americans they they sieged the Quebec City until seventeen the spring of seventeen seventy six. They decided to get out of there because there were poor camp conditions, as you can imagine. And you know what happens when you siege a place? Uh, Nothing goes in or out, and people can get hungry depending on how long it lasts. Well, not only that, but disease. Yes. A lot of disease. They got smallpox. Oh, man. Yeah. That's quite a disease to get. So uh, they were dealing with all that when a squadron of British ships arrived, and they were like, okay, we're out. Goodbye. Later, Gator. So just to, I'm trying to remember the historical milestones so I understand who's fighting whom at this point. And I know Canada, as we know it today, is a unified country, and they're Canadians. They're not really subject to, they're not British, they're not French. But at this time, Quebec, like Montreal, they they speak French today, and they were formerly a French colony, but I think at the end of the French-Indian War they um they were ceded to england and so they were officially english colonies now and so when the americans are invading this area they're invading quote unquote england even though the people there have long been french colonists is that right that is correct at this time this okay. area was held by england okay another attempt was made to get back into quebec but it failed at the troy riveras on June 8th, 1776, and then Carleton, he launched his own invasion and defeated Arnold at the Battle of Van, of Valcour Island in October. Arnold falls back to his uh, good old fort where the, the uh, his invasion had begun. So, of course, since they didn't keep anything, the invasion ended as a pretty good disaster. But Arnold's efforts in... 76 did delay a any full-scale British counteroffensive until 77. Now, this invasion did cost the Americans their base of support in the British public opinion. Quote, so that the violent measures towards America are freely adopted and counteracted by a majority of individuals of all ranks, professions, or occupations in this country. Yeah, I think... Um... A defensive war is one thing, or a, a fight for f- your own freedom, but once you start invading other places, that's that's not viewed favorably. Yeah. Uh, it did gain them limited support in the population of Quebec, but that dried up when uh, they were actually occupied. Because American policies against suspected loyalists became a lot harsher. Yes, I imagine so. And, of course, the Army's hard currency ran out. So they were like, "Uh, we're not even getting paid anymore. There were two small regiments of uh, Canadians recruited. And they were with the Army when they did retreat. So after that, there's Canadians in the U.S. Army. 
Nice. Welcome aboard, boys. Yeah. So even though they did get out of there, the Americas did continue to view Quebec as part of their cause and made specific pro uh, provisions for it to join the U.S. under the 1777 Articles of Confederation. So nice. we almost had Quebec. <laughs> I, I'm. Let me think about that, and see, I'll let you know how I feel about it. If we would have had them, would that have been better? I don't know. Probably not. No. I think they're happy where they are. I think so. So when this whole war began, the British only had a significant force in Boston. And, of course, it would be evacuated by the signing of Declaration of Independence in 76. Uh, the Americas and all of the 13 colonies were very quick to establish new revolutionary governments based around the various committees and conventions that they had created in 74 and 75. The uh, British governors and officials all of a sudden found themselves powerless. And in a lot of places, they were just forced to get out of Dodge. I imagine there was a lot of tarring and feathering that took place. In uh, a lot of different places, the uh, Americans were energetic. And they had, the, they had angry mobs behind them. And the Loyalists were too intimidated and poorly organized to be effective against, you know, angry mobs. <laughs> yes. The term lynching actually originated when Virginia patriots held informal courts and arrested Loyalists. It did not include its execution at the very beginning. I see. Well, I, I imagine, I know there's a Lynchburg, Virginia. Is that where you imagine that took place to get that moniker? I imagine so. Now, King George III issued a proclamation of rebellion in August of 1775 and addressed Parliament on October 26th. He denounced, quote, the authors and promoters of this desperate conspiracy who had labored to inflame my people in America and to infuse into their minds a system of opinions repugnant to the true constitution of the colonies and to their subordinate relation to Great Britain, unquote. Sounds to me like he's saying, oh, those guys are just having a temper tantrum. Mm -hmm. And they need to know their place. I think that was yeah. the thrust of that. We need to punish these young whippersnappers. Yeah. He did detail measures taken to suppress the revolt which included, quote, friendly offers of foreign assistance. The King's speech was endorsed by both houses of Parliament and a motion in the House of Commons to oppose uh, coercive measures was defeated 278 to 108. The uh, British did receive an olive branch petition written by the Second Continental Congress uh, dated July 8th, 1775, begging the king to reverse the policies of his ministers. But by this time, the invasion of Canada was already underway, and Parliament dis debated on whether to accept the petition. And after a lengthy debate, because who could do things fast when people are dying? Oh, yeah. Why would you want to? We've got to make sure we understand it academically. Mm. Before we take any action. Yeah. 
Uh, but they rejected it by 53 votes. It was of their opinion that it was insincere. They don't really mean it. What, what are you talking about? Parliament then voted to impose a blockade against the colonies. The uh, king himself ended up taking full control by micromanaging the war effort. Despite, you know, everybody saying this is not a good idea, your kingliness. Well, when you're the king, uh, you get to run the show, at least to a degree when you have a parliament that you're subject to as well, but you get a lot of latitude. Yeah. Uh, the king aggressively rejected independence and demanded the use of Indians to harass the Americans. Now, when you say Indian, I imagine this is Native American Indian because England didn't have a presence in India yet, or are you talking India Indian? Well, first of all, uh, yes, I'm talking about Native Americans. Second of all, Britain did have a presence in India. Oh, did they? I didn't know if it was this early. I knew it kind of grew over time, but I thought it was more in the 1800s. So, yeah, that will, hey, I'm here to learn, <laughs> boss, so we're good. Uh, now, the Irish Parliament pleaded its loyalty and agreed to the withdrawal of troops from Ireland to suppress the rebellion in America. Most Irish Protestants were against the war and favored the Americans, but the Catholics supported the king. That is unusual, because that's not usually how that breaks down. Yeah. Well, I mean, by this time, I'm pretty sure the uh, this would be the Church of England, which was established by the monarchy. Right. <clears throat> and so they would, um, they would use religion to divide the people of Ireland. And so the Protestants usually were in line with the crown, whereas the Catholics were not. Because, uh, yeah, the, the crown would try to use their faith against them anyway. So this is, I just think it's weird that the Catholics were on board with helping the crown against the colonies while the Protestants were pro-colony. That's interesting. Well, to tell you what, um, any Catholics, Irish Catholics out there, let us know what happened. So, so we can wrap our head around it a little bit more. Uh, but the American war revolution was the first war in which Irish Catholics were allowed to enlist in the army. Really? Mm-hmm. So, Militarily, the British response to the rebellion around Boston was a lost cause because of how weak they responded. They lost control of every single colony. The peacetime British army had been kept small on purpose since the glorious revolution to prevent the abuse by the king. Yeah, you don't want to. Yeah, if if we were a colony still, and we had a massive amount of troop presence in our streets, that would feel disconcerting. You know what I mean? Yeah. So having just a minor force that would take care of things that that at least from an optics perspective would be the right call. But I guess when things get inflamed and you need force, uh, it's <laughs> it's not a good call. An occupying force is always always looked down upon. Right. But to get a force large enough to be able to get back in there and take what they thought was theirs, the uh, British had to launch a 
recruiting campaign in Britain and Ireland. And they hired mercenaries from the small German states. But of course, this stuff takes time. Uh, the king also wanted to save money. He was a penny pincher. So that means that the administration of the army was inefficient. Russia refused to rent out their soldiers. And after a year, the British were finally able to ship an army of 32,000. Whoa. To, you know, take back their, quote, unquote, their colonies. And this happened in the summer of 1776. It was the largest force the British had ever sent outside of Europe at the time. Alrighty. Well, you know what? I think we are going to, uh, we're going to end it right there. I think that's a good spot. When we come back next time, we're going to get into New York, New Jersey, uh, area, and then maybe Pennsylvania. This is quite a cliffhanger that you're leaving us on. 32,000 troops coming to the, our shores. And then what happens? Tune in next time. What well, you know, you got to keep everybody wanting more, right? That's true. Oh, by the way, no peeking like by going to the library or going on the internet to find out what happens next. Be here. If you're in history class, cover your ears and just ignore yeah. the teacher. Don't learn anything. Until we come back. I'm kidding. We love our teachers. Please pay attention. <laughs> All right. So we are partnered with HeroCars.us, where we honor one of our fallen angels after the end of our episodes. And today we are honoring Ensign John Joseph Parley. His hometown was Omaha, Nebraska. He served aboard the USS LST 7 or 375. He received the Medal of Honor and Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was July 10th, 1943. Killed in action in Sicily, Italy. He was 23 years old. So after successful operations in North Africa following the United States entry into World War II, Allied strategists turned their attention to an invasion of Europe. The first step would be Operation Husky, which was a massive amphibious assault on the island of Sicily. As ships, men, and military assets were being staged, a small accident threatened to give away the entire operation. One man gave his life to prevent disaster. John Parley was born on May 26, 1920 to Harry and Mary in Omaha, Nebraska. John was the oldest of nine children. His parents said that as a boy, he came across as shy, but at home he was full of wisecracks. In his youth, John told his family that he wanted to be a Catholic priest and later attended seminary. After a few months, he realized it wasn't a good fit and returned home and instead went to Omaha's Crichton University and studied accounting. While at Crichton, Parley joined the Reserve Officer Training Program, or ROTC, during his junior year in 1941. And with America officially entering World War II in December 1941, following the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, he enlisted in the United States Naval Reserve as a apprentice seaman on January 11, 1942. After graduating from college, he was sent to the United States Navy Reserve Midshipman School at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. And on January 28, 1943, he was commissioned into the active duty Navy as an ensign. Following a brief assignment at Naval Station Norfolk in Virginia, 
He was assigned to the Northwest African Amphibious Force and the USS LST-375. In early July 1943, Allied forces were amassing off the shores of Sicily. Ensign Parley was a ship's officer in charge of small landing boats on LST-375. Operation Husky, the Allied invasion of Sicily, was about to begin, according to the U.S. Department of Defense. Quote, on July 9, 1943, the night before the invasion, Parley's ship was among tens of thousands of American forces preparing for the surprise landing. Around 0130 on July 10th, his LST had started to swing its smaller landing craft into the ship's small cranes to prepare to lower them into the water. One boat was loaded with ammunition, explosives, detonating fuses, and smoke pots, which were used to create large smoke screens that troop ships would hide behind. One of these smoke pots accidentally ignited. Parley happened to be walking past and saw the smoking pot and a fuse burning. Realizing that if the boat's con contents ignited, the resulting fireworks would give away the entire operation. He leapt into the unoccupied boat. Ensign Parley's fact fast actions would save the operation, cost him his life, and earn him the Medal of Honor. His citations read, for valor and courage above and beyond the call of duty as officer in charge of small boats in the USS LST-375 during the amphibious assault on the island of Sicily, July 9th through 10th, 1943, realizing that a detonation of explosives would prematurely disclose to the enemy the assault about to be carried out, and with full knowledge of the peril involved, Ensign Parley unhesitantly risked his life to extinguish a, a smoke pot accidentally ignited in a boat carrying charges of high explosives, detonating fuses and ammunition. Undaunted by the fire and blinding smoke, he entered the craft, quickly snuffed out a burning fuse, and after failing in his desperate effort to extinguish the fire pot, finally seized it with both hands and threw it over the side. Although he succumbed a week later from smoke and fumes inhaled, Ensign Parley's heroic self-sacrifice prevented grave damage to the ship and personnel and ensure the security of a vital mission. He gallantly gave his life in the service of his country. Ensign John Joseph Parley was lost at age 23 on July 29, 1944. The U.S. Navy commissioned the destroyer escort ship USS Parley, DE-708, in his honor. In 1993, Crichton University dedicated its military science building, which houses its ROTC program, to Ensign Parley. So Ensign John Joseph Parley, thank you. Thank you. All right, Christoph. Take us out. Yes, sir. Take us out. All right. Take us out. <laughs> Thank you so much, everybody, for listening uh, and embarking with us on a new conflict and new discovery. I hope you learn along the way. Um, if, if there's anybody out there that has a specific interest in this, I guess, era of history and wants to participate and kind of communicate with us and let us know maybe we got something wrong or maybe there's something that needs more exploration, contact us. There's a couple of ways to do that. Uh, you can email us at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also tweet us at usnhistorypod. So let us know what you think. And uh, also, if you want a more back-and-forth conversation that's more direct, uh, you can join our Discord channel, and you can find that link in the show notes. Also, we are on YouTube, 
and you can listen to us on YouTube. This thing that you're listening to now, if it's not on YouTube, that that's not the thing you're using right now to listen to us, you can also go to YouTube and listen to us there if you like. Hey, we uh we like to be a little bit of everywhere. Uh, be sure to rank, or excuse me, rate, not rank, rate us, preferably highly, and uh, tell your friends. You know, we'd love to have more people on board and engage with more of you. So thank you very much for listening. Back to you, Dale. So since Twitter has changed their name to X, instead of tweeting, are we X-rated? <laughs> uh, yes, I think it's safe to say. I will be happy to tell my mom that I'm on an X-rated podcast. I'm sure she'll be thrilled. And with that, guys, we're going to wish you a fair winds and following seas. See you next time, guys. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing 2-1-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-